Okay, hello and welcome to episode 22 of Dano Says So. Um, today's guest is more so than a lot of the people I talk to who are old friends of mine. Timmy is a recent friend, but a good friend. Um, anybody watching this is going to know him from his time in Token Entry, uh, maybe Redemption 87. Um, he and I have been lucky to spend a lot of time on stage together via his, his band Let Rage. And now in War Camps, uh, Timmy Chunks, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Very, uh, very excited to, to do this. Okay, um, well, thank you. So, an interesting thing, Timmy and I are in the same photos in 1989 on the same record co cover, playing the same shows, but didn't know fuck all about each other and didn't really socialize much at all. Um, spoke, I think, once in the next 30 years, I guess it would be, uh, and that would probably be at, at, at one of the Rev reunions. Probably. But then over the last three years, we've been lucky to spend a lot of time together on stage and everything else. I'd rather go back to when we didn't know each other very well. Uh, <laughs> CBGBs and New York Hardcore during the exact spell that we met, this holy ground, hallowed territory to a lot of people in America. Why do you think that is? Um, you, you know, that's a really good question. Uh, it's... It's something that captured that, um, you know, that time, the mid to late 80s. Um, hard was, it, What's that? was it genuinely so different than other venues on the East Coast? I know its history was very rich. Um, no, it wasn't. I mean, oh, it's hard to explain. I, I guess it was really different. I mean... <laughs> You had the 930 Club in D.C. Oh. Uh, you had the Anthrax in Connecticut. Oh. Um, there were a few venues in Boston, TTs being one of them. Um, Rat Skeller. Rat Skeller was a little bit later, but, uh, yeah, you know, there was just something about CBs. It was back then, 80s, you know, it was – it's almost as if you knew – you were you were at something that was really important more so than just you know oh i like this band uh they i i think what they're saying is really important it was something about the actual time itself spent there yeah that made it really like you just kind of knew that it was something really important and i mean i you know I've been in venues all around the freaking world, but I can still close my eyes and picture walking into CBS, everything about it. You know, I played there twice, um, played there in 88 and in 89. Um, one of the shows with you, the other one a show with a government issue in the Iceman. Yeah. And I remember getting there and having it not be at all what I expected. It was smaller than I expected. It was already legendary for being run down, but there was still right. something really primeval about it. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that I think a lot of other people assume worldwide is that it was this incredibly tough, incredibly harsh place. I didn't get that. Is that a perception or is that just it mattered when you were there? Matter of when you were there. Yeah. Absolutely. It was, um, it was without a doubt. I mean, you know, again, going back to the eighties, uh, it, it, 35 years ago, that area yeah. was a hellhole. You know, it was a, um, above Seabees was a hotel, but it was a, basically a homeless hotel. 
so like vagrants and stuff and cops would show up out front of CBs and ambulances would show up and you didn't know if it was for something that was happening inside the club or something that was happening at up at <laughs> stairs at the hotel. I mean, but it was crazy times. It was absolutely yeah. crazy times back then. Yeah. Um, you never knew. Uh, it's funny. Jay Bentley and I were, were um, downtown LA one night. We, we went to, we met up, we had a show, and, you know, we were going to get some dinner and we were talking with, some of the younger kids who were at the show that were walking with us and, and Jay and I were just like, you don't realize what this used to be like, mm-hmm. right? You're lucky that you get to walk down the street. Like, you know, in 84, when you were walking down that part of the city, if a bag blew across the street, you were like, Oh, what's going to happen? Like you didn't know, okay. you know, like the littlest thing could really freak you out. Um, yeah. So, at that time, it was a pretty fucking hectic spot. There were always fights. Almost every show um, had fights, but it, in a weird way, um, it was almost an initiation, right? Um, the fights and, and, and uh, the animosity didn't really seem to last. It was like a fight would break out. It would end up sprawling out onto the street. And, you know, and the next week, everything was fine. It didn't have, maybe the contrast was that it didn't have these sort of lethal lasting repercussions that the same thing was happening in downtown Long Beach during the same year, dude. Which was you would have street gangs populating Los Angeles shows that had nothing to do with hardcore whatsoever. It seems to me that maybe everything that happened in CBs was at least scene generated. Absolutely. Yeah, it really was. And that was, it was funny because back then, you know, be reading Flipside or, or Maximum Rock and Roll or whatever, and we'd be like, oh, another show. Got, it, it, seemed, it seemed to me anyway that every show in L.A., especially in L.A., in the Los Angeles area, got shut down by cops, and there was a riot. Like, that's while, all we yeah. heard about. You know, so, uh, and it's crazy. And there was a huge, there was a giant part of me that was like, oh, I should be out there. I want to... I want to. I want to know what this is like. I, you know, I'm. I'm bummed that I'm not getting to experience that. Right. At the same time, you know, we had shows that were shut down, and we had shows that there were riots at. Um, you know, it happened all the time. It happened everywhere. Um, as far as CB's becoming such a, uh, I don't know, iconic place, I'm not really sure why it happened. It has. I think it has a lot to do with. Um, like you said, you know, in Long Beach, a lot of gangs were coming to shows and stuff. Mm-hmm. At CB, it was ours. Yeah. You know, there weren't gangs coming in. That's huge. Because we never, we knew things were going to happen at Fenders. We didn't right. think Fenders, but we didn't think Fenders was ours. Oh, okay. I got you. But that sense of ownership. That, that the, the, for me, the light just went on over my head. That's the, that's the key distinction that I'm hearing. Yeah. No, it definitely, it definitely was ours. Or it felt that way anyway. Well, let's track something then. Let's get into ours, specifically yours. So Token Entry being my first exposure to you. Token Entry started when, played where first, uh, and how much of it went on, where we were just wearing it on the place we're we're discussing. Um, Token Entry, I was not the original singer in Token Entry. Okay. Um, Anthony Communale, who went on to sing for Raw Deal, 
uh, two very different styles and presences. Right. So <laughs> in, in, um, it was in 1986, I was, uh, skating at this spot in Astoria called the pyramids, um, made famous by a kraut song by the same name. Okay. Um, and I was skating there and, and Johnny and Ernie were there and we we're all skating together and they're like, Oh, we're playing Saturday. You should come down and check out the show. And I was like, all right, cool. But it, I mean, it was, you know, it was at CB's and that's what you did on Sunday. You went to the show. That's, it was just, it, you didn't have to know who was playing, you know, which was, which was uh, a great thing about having it because, you know, with today you can just go online and look up who's playing where or whatever. Right. Back then, you know, you, someone had to tell you or you, you had to see a flyer. Okay. Wasn't always um, easily accessible. So they said, oh, we're playing. And I was like, all right, cool, yeah, I'll, I'll be there. And to be honest, I think this, oh, fuck, sorry about that. Uh, I think this might have, they might have been playing with Bad Religion. I'm not sure. Okay. And um, so I go and a big part of going to shows at CBS was uh, what I used to call making the scene, right? Just, and it was just a social gathering, you know, it didn't matter if you went in or not. I was going to say, I remember out in front of that club, probably as well as I remember inside that club and more so than probably any place else in the country. Right. Yeah. So, so that, you know, that was a huge thing. You know, you get off the train, skate over to the, to CB's, so he's playing either pay the five bucks to get in or, or, you know, or someone would pay five bucks, but they'd lick their hand before they got their hand stamped. And then they'd come out and we would do that. And, you know, you just constantly um, trying to not pay $5. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> seems ludicrous. Now, in, yeah. in, in 1986, $5 was a lot of money. Um, so I went in to, to watch them play. And I think in the third song I walked out and I was like, Oh, these guys suck. Like, honestly, I was just like, like, I, I couldn't watch him. I had, I held no interest in him and, um, walked out. It's outside. I was skating around and stuff. My friend devil came out after their set and he was like, Oh, you should have stuck around. They shot off a bunch of silly string. And I was like, Oh, that sounds fun. Mm-hmm. So in 1986, in the summer of 1986, token entry went to California okay. with Anthony and, um, Came back, I want to say, probably sometime in August of 86, they came back. Um, I don't know what happened on that tour. I don't know what, again, it's, you know, depends on whose story you want to believe, but Anthony left the band. Um, At the time, I was living with... um, Chuck Valley, who played in Ludacrist and later Murphy's Law, okay. you know, and then um, unfortunately got murdered in L.A. Um, so I was living with Chuck, and he said, hey, uh, he, he had seen one of the guys from the band. I don't know if it was Ernie or Johnny or, or Mickey, the, the guitar player at the time. And he said, oh, they're trying out singers. And they, they were asking about if you wanted to sing. And I was like, oh, sure. That sounds like a blast. I'll do that. Okay. <laughs> So went down there, they were holding auditions down at Don Fury's, you know, they had tried a few people out. I'm not exactly sure how many ended up getting the job, quote unquote. So, so in 86, 
late 86 mm -hmm. um, token entries sort of you know working through this okay we got a new singer uh, we're working on the music and everything mm -hmm. and Ernie at the time was actually playing drums in underdog he was filling in for yeah. drums in underdog and back then which doesn't seem to happen a lot nowadays for me anyway is that your band went everywhere together yeah yeah right so I think that's i think that's an age thing i don't think it's a change in the culture you know i i hope not i i hope i hope not um so ernie was playing a show the crypt i think it was called in 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 philadelphia with underdog okay. but we all went we we piled ernie's drums into johnny's van and we piled into the van and we drove down to the show all right all for one one for all <laughs> yeah basically and um and that was the first show yeah. that i ever sang with them in front of a crowd uh underdog got all their stuff set up and before they came on i don't know if it was me or ernie one of us asked richie and they're like hey can we get up and do a few songs so and that was that was just the start of it were you were you like me that you always i always knew i could be a singer i didn't have a lot of doubt about it you know it was just it was from the very first time I started seeing live punk rock, it was it was a matter of when thing. Was that? Uh, I, I don't know if I ever had that thought. Well, it's interesting because you play you play instruments. You play multiple I, I instruments. Do, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's I try. true. That's true before. Yeah, this, that's right. True Not after the fact. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um. It. I. We like to joke around. Uh, me and me and uh, Pete Kohler will joke around, mm -hmm. and um say that before sick of it all was sick of it all i used to jam with pete and those guys in um playing drums in right. Pete's basement and we were called general chaos with a k and an anarchy a it was awesome it was really punk <laughs> um i actually tried out for um for mayhem which became straight ahead okay to play drums um all of this would have been in like 85 early 86 um even was i was even supposed to play drums for gorilla biscuits at one point early on you know like uh saw gorilla biscuits first show was like a um a graduation party or a birthday party in the like basement of a um apartment building in jackson heights that i did not know okay. yeah and um so yeah so um if you want to look at instruments and, and playing musically Drums would be my first instrument. Okay. okay. You know, played drums, took drum lessons when I was younger. Um, and then didn't actually start playing guitar until I was singing in token entry and just kind of figuring out how to play stuff, really. Okay. But don't consider myself a guitar player by any means. Well, seeing as how I want to I wanted, uh, cover more than just music in this, you just gave me kind of an unexpected end. Which I didn't expect you to say that, <laughs> and we both and we both know that the first time we, we really played a show together and paid attention to what each other were doing, you were by then playing guitar. You know, by then yeah. you know in Let Rage. Well, if you don't consider yourself a guitar player, what made you decide to build a build a band around you anchored to the guitar? Um, the the thing with Let Rage is I was not supposed to be the singer. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
when when we started we started that band and we actually the idea for uh let rage came about in 2015 or 16 mm-hmm. at one weekend at punk rock bowling uh me deanna and our friend byron we're our, our friend jed we're driving from la up to vegas and on the drive deanna was talking about oh yeah she's played bass in a punk band in in um in Texas. And I was like, well, you play bass. I was like, let's start a band because <laughs> inevitably if I hang out with you long enough, I'll start a band with you. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's just kind of what I like to do. <laughs> Fair enough. So, um, so we get to Vegas and uh, I text Herman our drummer. And I said, Hey, starting a band, starting a hardcore band, uh, you want in. And he responded with, let rage, with an exclamation point, <laughs> which was a typo. Obviously, what he, he was trying to say, let's rage. Right. To agree to doing it. And I was like, oh, sweet, that's our name. I was like, that's the, that's fucking. I've always wondered about that, clear down to the exclamation point. No, I know. Yeah, and I was like, oh, that is awesome. So that weekend, the band was formed. Um, with uh, our friend Byron on basically lead guitar. Because I'm an okay rhythm guitarist. Okay. I don't really consider myself a guitar player. But but I I can play an okay rhythm guitar. And Jed was supposed to sing. We did... First practice, Jed didn't show up. I think he came to the second and third practice... And then never showed up again. And at which point, Deanna, Deanna looked at me and was just like, oh, you're singing. And I was like, I don't want to sing. You I do just, know you're Timmy Jones, don't you? I just want, but, that, but what does that mean? Honestly. You have that, well, in the way that I'm framing it, I'm being an asshole, but also you have the mileage. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be strange space for you. Right. No, and I get that. But that's, that's sort of brings us full circle to like, um, shiners and let rage where it's like we're not trying to live off of what we've done right this is you know we're trying to do something maybe everybody doesn't think it's new but it's new to me mm-hmm. right so i'm not i'm not trying to be like oh tim chunks from token entry and redemption a7 you know well, there are so many interesting things about let rage that i don't know if you appreciate i mean they're clearly conscious but i mean you have this six foot 20 guy who you know when i see you when i when i see you away from the stage you usually look like this when i see you in let rage so far without exception you're decked out and all white yeah you know you've got the guitar um you play as many other people's songs as you do your own yet the own material is very strong and stands on, on its own in other words there's nothing going on on that stage that's being the way done the way that i would do it and that makes it fascinating thank you thank yeah. you for um, first off what's with the what's with the milkman get up you know it's it's everybody wears black uh, everybody <laughs> you know I don't think I've worn another color in 30 years included you know yeah. and no and, and it's not to um, look if you come see Let Rage play you might not remember anything you might not remember anything I say. You not, might not remember any of the songs, but you will remember, oh, that guy was just all in white. Mm-hmm. That, and that's it. 
You know, it's to, it's to make an impression. It's striking and it's extremely effective. What you probably don't realize is that you do come off practiced. And I don't mean formulated. What I mean is a person spends decades on the stage. They become keenly aware of dead air. They become keenly aware of the flow of energy. And you have no choice but to like, sort of command that space and not let things sag. And in that, I think that's why you are probably always going to be looked at or expected to play front man, you know? Well, I mean, I can play guitar and have another front man and I can still have a microphone. So. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I think you, I think you do the position. I think you do the position right. And you do the position in a non-template fashion, which is hugely important to me in my own music. And I don't know that I'm as successful in finding unique spaces. So kudos to you. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Very um, much. Um, before we go on, I want to get into some things besides playing music and besides locations. Thank you for earlier this year. Uh, Timmy and I did duet on a few songs for China's Club and uh, on the most savage one, which is a song about not being able to fall asleep, given all the stressful things that are coming on. I'm expecting myself to be the caveman and you to sound like the voice of sanity and the berserker that came jumping out of your throat made me sound like a nun. So well done, sir. <laughs> That was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. It really was. There's, there's, there's Paul Miner's studio and the people that are lucky enough to be a part of what Paul does there and that are lucky enough to have familiar with each other. We've got something cool on our hands. I don't remember the West Coast ever having a studio that had a culture around it like that before. You know, there's just yeah. there's a familiarity I mean, and so I mean, many so many people we know going through the same space doing the same thing. Right. I, I was going to say possibly with the exception of. Um, what was that label that Epit- like every band on Epitaph recorded at in the like mid nineties, early early oh, mid nineties? Four one one four one one recorded everything we ever recorded except for comp tracks at West Beach with 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 Brett and with Cameron. Yeah. Well, anyway, and uh, that was a thing, but that was kind of you wanted to go there so you could say you went there. Right. Paul Miner's right. an old low profile hardcore kid who just you know Paul's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Redemption 87 recorded our first record with him. Okay. Um, right. Yeah. Well, so let's get into the technical end of music. When I ran into you at Rev 25, um, I think by then you had already you had already done stage work for for Green Day, and it was fairly well known that you had done so because you're just sort of in the ebbing era of people giving a fuck about the bands that went that route that didn't, you know, that went to massive shows and major label echelons and everything else. What I was thinking about is given the amount of work and stage management you've done and stage handing you've done for larger bands and at larger festivals and being someone who goes clearly back all the way back to mid eighties, you know, hardcore and punk rock on the lower East side, you have perspective on a huge evolution. Does this still feel like you're part of the same thing now that you were part of then? Do you have, do you prefer the shadows in it? Do you prefer the heavier lifting? I mean, uh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't feel the same. Okay. Any, and and that is. Uh, I mean, there's a couple of factors. I haven't toured professionally since 2000 in 10 years. Okay. Um, so it's been 10 years since I last toured professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, after which I, in 2012, I got into the electricians union. So mm-hmm. Now I just, I'm you know, I'm a, I'm a working schmuck like almost everybody else. 
Um, so mm-hmm. the stagehand stuff has really taken a back seat. Um, I was lucky enough in September of 2019 to do a three week run uh, with Rancid okay. um, guitar teching for, for Tim and Matt. And that was fantastic. And it made me realize how much I miss it for sure. But um, it's not the same for me, mainly because I, I don't want to say I've grown out of it, um, but I have moved. It's, it's the same thing with like, um, like I will, the chances of me re-grasping that feeling from a show in 1985 mm-hmm. are very slim. Right. But that doesn't mean that that feeling isn't happening every day at a backyard show or at some dive bar in downtown LA, but I just don't know about it. I would counter with something. You're a father. You're a father who's had health issues. You refer to yourself as a high-risk person regarding you know certain things that come up in COVID. You are an electrician who's part of the who's part of the union and is dependable dependent on those skills to make a living. That's a whole new screen. That's a whole new space to scream from. That's, I took nine years off from being in an active band. And when I grabbed my lunch pail and went back towards the stage, the source material was entirely different, but just as fulfilling. You know, so maybe it's not about, maybe it's not about finding 85 again. Maybe it's about lending voice to 2020. Okay. Then I, I misunderstood the question. No, 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 no. That's, 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 no, that's but I me verbally what... jacking off with what you made me think about. You know, I get what you're saying. Uh, as as for any any time I step on stage, whether it's playing a show with you at the Prospector, mm-hmm. or uh, playing at the Drop In in Bakersfield, which is a backyard uh, mini ramp skate mm-hmm. place, or playing in front of three people in San Diego, mm-hmm. um, every time I get on stage, I I personally have that feeling. I don't okay. personally lose that feeling. Um, I guess on a broader scheme, what I'm saying about not having that feeling is sort of um, like the scene, quote unquote. That world itself is not the same? Yeah, Yeah, the world itself is not the same. But that doesn't mean that for the 15 or 16-year-old, it's not exactly like it was when I was 15 and 16. I'll tell you a story, if you don't mind. No, Um, please. So uh, the band Ursula. You know, they're younger, they're younger than Shiner's Club. I mean, the median age in Shiner's Club is 50. I think Doug and I are both 53. The others are in their, are in the second half of their 40s, I think. If I'm wrong, one of them will smack me on the back of the head when they see this. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know we're not high schoolers. Ursula is not kids either, all right? But they're considerably younger than we are and come from a different time in this music. And I didn't grasp that. You know, we both play program. We're both on... You know, we both have a record out on Indecision. Um, we're both clearly very passionate about what we do. We played sort of a mixed bag show with them in San Diego, and it went well enough. They invited us to play a show with them at, I think the place is called Smell. I'm not sure. But at a, at a venue in, in L.A., right? Yeah, the Smell, yes. Yeah, DIY venue, right? Mm-hmm. Hands down, the worst response, most alienating uh thing we've been through and we've been lucky enough to be pretty universally well received over the few years we've been doing this right not that night and i was thinking to myself 
a couple of the guys in the band were pretty frustrated and everything else. And I was trying to step back from it and go, if I'd been in Gilman or Fenders or anywhere else, and somebody who was legitimately 20, which I'm referring to kids in the audience, legitimately 25, maybe even 30, maybe even more than 30 years older than me, had gotten on stage, I wouldn't have known what the fuck to do with it. I mean, the Sex Pistols are only 10 years older than I am. Right. So, I mean, I was like, we were dad. And what the fuck was dad doing? Yeah. You know, no. so I, you know. it, it's really hard to write relevant music to connect to a younger crowd. It's really hard to do that. I think it's almost a throwaway goal. Probably. You know, I, don't, I don't concern myself with it at this point, but that was part of coming to that conclusion. Right, yeah. No, <laughs> it, it, it probably is. I mean, it's... Um, when you start a band, you can't start a band going, okay, I'm going to target this audience. Otherwise you're, gonna... otherwise, you're selling, not singing. Right. But, I mean, obviously, there are a few exceptions, you know? You, you want to start, you want to sing to white supremacists? You start Screwdriver. You know what I mean? But it's like, oh, m- for the most part, when you start a band, you're not, you don't go, okay, this is my target audience. Mm-hmm. When I start a band, when I start, my target audience is hopefully somebody likes this. Right. And really, and that's, that's unfortunately where my target audience also ends because mm-hmm. I don't much expectation on it you know war i mean camps. I, oh war camps yeah war camps how does it differ how does it differ from let, let rage does that same psychology come into play you know just basically tell me about it um war camps uh my friend brian Meehan, known for 30 some odd years okay. um from new york we've always talked about doing a band together um, just unfortunately never happened. Uh, he was in Kill Your Idols for a while. Um, loyal to None. Um, a, a ton of bands from back east. And uh, so with the pandemic, he was like, hey, I'm going to send you these songs. I want you to do vocals on them. So basically, that was it. Um, the difference between... I'll say let rage and war camps is that let rage is definitely angrier. Okay. Um, now with war, I mean, war camps is definitely angry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was kind of waiting for you to catch that. I knew what yeah. you meant, but I'm all, I'm all, I'm all he'll hear himself. Yeah. War camps is angrier. Um, and in, in war camps, I'm just singing. So I don't have to worry about how to play a guitar or anything. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so we're just uh, we put that little four song demo together mm-hmm. it's actually it's up on Bandcamp. anybody can go check it out and listen to it and you know and we hope to continue writing songs okay. and we would love to you know have somebody put something out um, but who, who knows who knows what it what it will lead to uh, really lucky I got my friend Amory um, to do the drums on it um, he he's uh the original drummer from suicidal and he'll do <laughs> yeah and, and it's more than he'll do he's um when brian sent me the songs i was like oh my god amory would be perfect for this nice 
Amory and I, um, over the, I, I met him in 1994 on Lollapalooza. I was working for Green Day. He was working for the Beastie Boys. And, and we've stayed in touch. And we have gotten together through those years and have constantly made noise together in one form or another. Um, you know, throughout this pandemic, we've been getting together almost once a week. We were doing it for the past few months where we would get together once a week and we would just go to uh, the lockout room and just run through, song, run through songs that he and I wrote together back in 1998. You know, just to just to feed that bug, right? Music, because I don't know how you can ever play music mm-hmm. for any length of time, whether it's six months, a year, ten years, and just put it down and walk away from it. I don't know how you. I I cannot do that. You and I, you and I have a shared friend who's a god at what he does, did it for longer than that. That's Pete Graniak. Yeah. So, you know, clearly, we're not all wired the same. I think, I think the whole sure. world wants to hear that fucker play more guitar, and he's like, yeah, maybe. You know? <laughs> he's like, yeah, maybe. I built this three-story house that you can run on a hairdryer. Guitar, you say, you know. Yeah, it's, I, yeah. but again, you know, it's, for me, I, I can't do it. And I've gone long stretches of not playing music. <laughs> and, what I f- finally figured out was that the longer I go without playing music, the more depressed I get. Absolutely. I, I can relate to that. Yeah. So let's talk, so let's talk depression. Let's talk 2020. Okay. Huh. Um, and all I mean by that is, is, for instance, you were kind enough to just kind of give me a checkup call even within the last week. And it was great to hear from you. And it left me thinking, you know, I've been planning to do an interview with Timmy forever, so, but let's do it now. On the other hand, we haven't seen each other all year. Right. And for the last couple of years, we'd see each other every couple of months. Um, you're not able to work? Is that what you told me? Uh, yeah. Uh, so How's that happen? Well, last March, uh, I was at my doctor's, and he basically said, um, you're too high risk to be working around that many people. He's like, I need you to stay home. And I was like, Sweet, that sounds awesome. Because you know, um, delusions of grandeur set in. It was like, oh, this is amazing. I'm gonna write a bunch of new songs, and I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna be so productive, and I'm gonna, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll build a car. I'll build one of those kit cars. I'm gonna do it all. Mm-hmm. I haven't done jack shit. <laughs> I have so, not written one new song for Let Rage in the past nine months. So high, high risk. I mean, you're diabetic, yes. I'm diabetic, so. And I have rheumatoid arthritis. Okay. And the medication for that I take for my arthritis, mm-hmm. both of which diabetes and arthritis are both autoimmune diseases. So my immune system is already somewhat compromised. But the medication for the arthritis really makes my um, immune system like it's really super compromised. So uh, it's basically it's an issue of. Um, not so much if I'm working, like, how do I not get it? It's more an issue of how long will it take before I get it? Right. Well, you I mean, know. I should think that makes the pandemic that much more terrifying for you than it would be for someone like me, who I may be a bit of an overweight gorilla and working in restaurants, so I'm always around strangers. But by, but, 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 by the, but 
by and large, I'm hearty and hail, so to speak. You know what I mean? And right. I fear, and I fear this bug anyway. To know that if it got a hold of me, it could be more dangerous than it is to other people. I don't know if I'd stick my head out the house. I, unfortunately, the way the system works is I don't really have a choice. Um, Tell me about that. But I under, I understand what you're saying, and like not to be um, morbid or 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 try and like make it sound worse than it is, but. Mm-hmm. Um, if I end up on a respirator, the chances of me coming off of it are actually pretty slim because of, uh, like I said, because of all the underlying health conditions. So now, so I've been out of work since March. My doctor has actually extended my disability until this coming March, which means I will have been out of work for a year. Right. Um, I have great health insurance through the union. However, if you're not working, it doesn't last forever. When does that land? Um, the end of January, I will have to uh, go on to what's called COBRA, mm-hmm. which is, um, I keep my same insurance, but I have to pay out of pocket for a coverage of it, which because of the pandemic, they put in a, not, not a stimulus, but they extended it. So I can, I can be on the COBRA plan for up to 18 months. The first three months on the starting, COBRA. Starting, starting from when you go to COBRA or just? Starting, yeah. So basically okay. starting in February, I can be on COBRA for up to 18 months. Um, the first three months of which COBRA will cost me $187 a month, which is fine. There's, that's, I can do that. That's not an issue. After those three months are up, Cobra then goes to $1,800 a month. Which is not not survivable for anybody who's not an asshole. (laughs) Exactly. So I'm going to go back to work in January. Uh, I'm actually going to make a call to my boss tomorrow and ask him if there are any jobs that don't have as many people working on them, um, you know, and explain the situation to him. Um, So when I go back to work in January, I have to work three months three or four months before I can come off of Cobra and my health insurance kicks back in. So if I go back to work in February, that means for the month of May, I have to pay $1,800. I truly hate hearing all of this. That said, I want people watching this to know that you and I discussed talking about this beforehand. Yeah. And I appreciate your interest in doing so and being willing to share it. I I think the more people hear real talk from people they respect about the truth about this virus, maybe the more it breeds responsibility. So thank you for that. Uh, no, that's, your, that's your good deed in the course of Dano says so, sharing this story with us. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, we could go on an hour long tirade about mm-hmm. um, the way that this country is so insurance driven. But I mean, honestly, we could, you know, we could spend so much time on that. A fellow back and, east, and almost not. Worth... A hardcore singer from back east ahead, that I, I don't know in, that I don't know in person, but I but I know through the you know life in the digital era works in insurance and works in liability insurance. And he said people don't grasp that this is changing our industry, and that in terms is going to change 
the way live venues work forever because we can't afford the same kind of risk without a higher return, you know, without basically without building a higher war chest, you know, the first set of bartenders that gets COVID off customers and reels around and wants to take it out on their employers is going to be devastating. Yeah. um, I mean, across the board, it's just, it's, it's insane. Somebody was asking me the other day, there was last April or this past April, there was supposed to be a big show in LA, big outdoor punk in the park. It was called, I think. Mm -hmm. I forget who all was playing it. Pennywise, maybe, I don't know, you know, 10,000, 12,000 people in some park in downtown LA. It got pushed back to August because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And now apparently it's been rescheduled for April of 21. And my friend was asking me and they were like, do you, do you think it's going to happen? And I was like, not a chance. Yeah, neither do I. I was like, I was like, there's no way it's going to happen in April. And they said, what about August? I said, not, not at that capacity. No way. And if it does, I ain't going to fucking be there. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and there's that to top it off. But, you know, so Ticketmaster has this quote unquote, oh, we've figured out how to, um, when you buy your ticket, before you enter the venue, we've, we've got the software, we've got it figured out so that you can prove to us that you have a negative test or that you've gotten the vaccine. As soon as Ticketmaster announced that, some dirtbag was figuring out how to get around that. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, because punk rock mischief would never have people trying to beat that equation. <laughs> you know, that's that, that is the, in the era of plague, that is licking your hand and duplicating the stamp. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, listen, uh, I think about this a lot. You know what I think about when I try to hypothesize, when does the world start up again? Am I even in a band anymore? Are any of us even in bands anymore? You know, how does this work? I think of Alex's. Think of Alex's, you know, which we've played together a few times and everything else. Uh-huh. And that's the space in which I say, okay, that's a medium-sized venue. It's not a, it's not a hole in the wall. Not every show there is packed, but it's well attended, right? Say, Absolutely. Beyond everything else that goes on, what has to happen and how soon am I going to feel safe in that space? The safe that I most frequently visualize playing shows in. Right, and it's going to be a minute. I mean, I wish all of these businesses their survival. I hope some alternative, mo- some alternative mo- model, and some form of stimulus or whatever keeps their hearts beating. But just from the musician standpoint and from the personal safety standpoint, I'm like, fuck, man, it'll be a miracle if I'm on stage by next summer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't see it happening personally. Yeah, and then my, so my question to you would be, as a creator and as a creative person, and this is what I have written as the out on my notes is does it matter? Do we need to congregate to, to create? I mean, do you think without the audience that the, that the appetite for creation will go? Now, this is the man who confessed to not writing a, a lyric song in nine months. No, no, yeah. but I'm also a chief procrastinator. Okay. So um, I don't think the um, urge to, to uh, create will go away. Right. But, but I absolutely believe that the community is necessary and it helps spark me to create more. I haven't, pra- I haven't written a song for Lit Rage because Lit Rage hasn't practiced in nine months. Mm-hmm. When we are practicing weekly, I have song ideas constantly. Every so often I post, I want new songs. And invariably in the comment sections, people, people reply and they don't quite understand what I mean because I'm a non-musician, right? right. I need John and Colin and Doug or whoever I assemble to play with in whatever year of my life it is, or in order to create songs. Until I have them, it's just poetry. And everybody loves poetry. (laughs) 
<laughs> anyway, well, listen, Timmy, I am going to cut it there. I had very specific things I wanted to talk to you about, and you gave even more depth that I hope on them, and I thank you eternally for that. Thank you so much for having me. We do it again sometime. Hopefully the world will be open by the time we do. Yeah, hopefully we can do it like sitting across a table from each other. I like this idea, Tim. All right. All right. Take care, sir. Instead of a split screen. I kind of like, I kind of like the split screen, but but for now, let's hope it goes away. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Huh, how's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.